consequences. You and I as Bible-believing Christians say that we believe in absolute truth as it is revealed in the Bible, God's Word. Folks, the implications of that claim are absolutely breathtaking. We claim that we believe in absolute truth. That claim is breathtaking. If we claim that Jesus Christ is the eternal God and the unique one-of-a-kind Son of the Father, if we claim that He came to fully and conclusively reveal God to mankind, if we say that He is God incarnate, if we say that He is the single provision that God has made for the human race to know Him and to be reconciled in a relationship with Him. If we truly believe that in dying on the cross, Jesus bore our sins, taking our guilt and our punishment as our substitute, if we claim that he rose again from the dead on the third day, if we say that we believe that he ascended to be enthroned in the glory of heaven and is in the position of supreme authority over all things, if we claim that he is the only Savior of humanity, if we believe that absolute truth means all of these things, then the logical conclusion, the only logical conclusion, is that all other religions, belief systems, ideas, gods, ideologies, that they are all false and that they lead to eternal destruction. And that is a breathtaking idea. It is a startling statement. It is offensive in a politically correct culture. And not only so in the world, but even in certain parts of the professing Christian church, that claim of, of absolute truth makes people uncomfortable and embarrassed. Someone says, I might be able to accept that conclusion regarding absolute truth. That one who does not believe in Jesus Christ as you've described him is eternally lost if he knowingly rejects that truth. But what about those who have never heard the truth at all? Isn't there sincerity in whatever they claim to believe acceptable to God? Will God also condemn those who have never heard the absolute truth? Well, that is a common question which deserves careful examination because it goes right to the heart of who God is. 
and because also the answer to that question shapes who you are. And so we want to look at it this morning. Will God condemn those who have never heard this absolute truth of the Bible? Here's what some people say about that question. Some people say God will grant eternal life to those who receive his general revelation. Now what we mean by general revelation is what God reveals about himself in nature, in the creation, and also in the human conscience. For all people are born with a conscience that directs them toward right or wrong, however imperfectly it may be. They are informed eventually as they grow up by their culture regarding right and wrong. And there are those who say, well, God will grant eternal life to those who live by the general revelation that they do know. This claim is based upon ideas like John 3.16 that you and I believe. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That verse, they say, says that God sent his Son to die for everyone. Everyone. Not just Christians, not just the Western culture, but for everyone. Secondly, they say, in the book of Romans, it says that God does not have favorites. Chapter 2, verse 11 says, For God does not show favoritism among people. And then they further conclude, Therefore God would not allow someone to go to hell if they had never heard the truth, but lived by the light that they had even though they didn't know about Jesus Christ. Some of them point to Romans 2, verses 6 and 7, where it says, God will give to each person according to what he has done. To those who by <clears throat> persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. <clears throat> but for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth, and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. And they argue these, these folks have never heard the truth to reject it. And in the general light of revelation that they have from creation in their, con in their conscience, they are seeking to follow after God. And so God will surely not send them to hell. Those who sincerely seek God by receiving Whatever information they have about God will not be condemned. There are others who say something a little different. They say God will give those who haven't heard another chance. This comes in some variations, but uh, it, either at death or sometimes after death, they say, those who have never heard the gospel will be told the gospel. And at that time, they will be given an opportunity to believe on Christ. 
Now, if you could just imagine the scenario that's painted by that claim for a moment. Here we have an individual who has died, who had no knowledge of the gospel. And he has told the truth, and before him is the pathway to this burning place called hell. And the pathway to a glorious place called heaven, I just wonder what he will choose, don't you? But there are those who say those who have never heard the truth will be given a chance after death to hear the message and then to make a choice. There's another group that says, well, God will accept those who've never heard the truth on the basis that they could not have known it. When a person without the knowledge of the truth dies, God just automatically receives them into eternal life because it would be unfair for them to be judged. Those who say this uh, have a similar line of thought, I suppose, to those who, uh, as I do, believe that, that babies, for example, when they die, are taken directly into heaven. And they say these people could never have known. God would not be unfair to them. He will take them to heaven in his general grace. There are others who answer it a different way. They say God will take those who have never heard onto heaven after they have suffered for a while in the fires of hell. This is a position not only the Roman Catholic Church takes, but there are some evangelicals who kind of move in that direction as well. Uh, they believe that these folks can't enter directly into heaven but since their sin is not against the truth, because they didn't know it, they will be punished for a while for the sins they did commit, and then God will welcome them into heaven. And one of the verses from the Bible that they go to to try to substantiate this claim is 1 Corinthians 3.15, where it says that on that day, the day of judgment that uh, there will be those who will be saved, but only as those escaping through the flames. And that's how they interpret that verse. And there's still another group who answer that question, what about those who've never heard, by saying God will ultimately save everyone, whatever they believe. This idea is called universalism. And again, it comes in variations. There are those who say, well, this is true because God is a God of love. And God cannot contradict the essence of his being by condemning anyone. And therefore, no matter what people do or what they believe in their life, they will end up in heaven. A variation of that is people who would say, well, it's not because God is a God of love that that's so. God is a God of love, they say, but it's specifically because of the saving work of Christ. He died for all men. Therefore, all men will be saved. There is benefit that comes from his atonement on the cross 
for everybody who's ever lived, no matter what they believe. These are but some of the things people say regarding this question, this very important question. What about those who've never heard the truth? We want to turn now from human logic and human sentiment to see what God says about this. I invite you to open your Bible to the primary text for today, and that is in 1 Timothy chapter 2, where I'm going to begin reading in verse 3. I hope that you have your Bible with you, that you're opening it now, and we'll look at this text that begins in verse 3 of 1 Timothy chapter 2, where it says, This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, or humanity, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. And for this purpose I was appointed a herald and an apostle, says Paul. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. A teacher of the true faith to the Gentiles. We human beings have nearly an endless capacity to reason what we wish to be true, to be true. We can develop clever rationales as to why this or that idea must surely be the way it is. This is especially true when it comes to religion. We humans weave together theologies and, and gods and belief systems that tend to please us. We do that naturally. And so we can be easily deceived by our own reckoning. That's why God warned several times in the Bible, do not be deceived. And I will tell you, there is no deceit that is more slippery for any of us to deal with than self-deceit. When we have created these ideas and this logic in our own minds about what must surely be so, what is absolutely necessary is for you and me to humble ourselves and to listen to what God says and how God defines the truth. We are not capable in ourselves to define truth. We have to listen to the God of truth because He cannot lie. Human beings can and we do. We lie to ourselves and we lie to one another. But God cannot lie and God sets the agenda for what truth really is. So what does the Bible, the word of truth, say about the question that is before us this morning? Well, from our text, we're going to see several ideas that God states. The first idea is this, 
that God created humanity. God created humanity, but we human beings have rebelled against him. Someone said to me recently, I used to think that all people were the children of God. I've come to understand that that is not the case. She said, we are all creatures of God, but we are not all the children of God. That is a good statement. Indeed, we are all the offspring of God, to use the words of Paul in Acts chapter 17, because we bear in ourselves the image of God. But that does not mean we're all the children of God. This one God that is spoken of in chapter 2 of 1 Timothy is the creator God. He is the one who gave us life, all of us. In him we all live and move and have our essence, our being. But we human beings, as the offspring of God, have rebelled against our creator. And that rebellion is universal. It's what the Bible calls sin. Our rebellion reveals itself in many and diverse ways, but at its essence, it is the enthronement of ourselves or of something else in the place of God. Sin is a revolt against God and His truth. It is a manufacturing of our own truth. We, we have just a snapshot of this right now in our, in our culture, in this battle between evolution and intelligent design. Isn't it interesting to listen to those broad-minded, tolerant people who believe in evolution as they seek to suppress even the discussion of the idea that the creation that we see could be designed by some intelligence, not even calling that God. There is a revolt in the human heart against God, our Creator, and the truth that God gives to us. It is universal. In the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Later he says, there is none righteous, no, not one. Now people are good or bad in a relative sense. There are moral people, there are immoral people. But the fact is, even the most moral person comes far short of the perfection of God. The perfection which alone he can fellowship with and have a relationship with. All have sinned. And because of that, we have created a separation from God. That requires... A mediator. Implicit in this text is the fact that there is this gulf between God and humanity. And that now there has been provided someone to step into that gulf to act as a mediator to bring us together. But notice first the reality of the gulf that is so very difficult for so very many people to accept.
especially that they themselves should be in this situation of being in revolt against God and separated from their Creator. But that's the reality. That's truth. There's a second truth that we see revealed in our text, and that is that God is a God of love. Now, this is clear from other texts of the New Testament. For example, the one on the screen now. 1 John 4, 8, God is love. That's what God says about himself. Peter agrees with that. Notice what he says. God is merciful. He does not want to punish us. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Here in our text, it says, God wants all men to be saved. God is love. He is merciful. He does not want to punish us for our sins. Now, folks, wake up for just a minute. This is an amazing truth that the God of the universe against whom we have revolted, against whom we are hostile in subtle and overt ways, this God still loves us. And he does not want to punish us for our sins. He is a God of mercy. What an amazing God the Bible reveals to us. But it's true. It's absolutely true. He created humanity. And we have all rebelled against him. And yet God loves us. And he so loves us that he does not want to punish us. He desires to be merciful to us. And so the universalist stops at that point and says, well, that answers the question, doesn't it? There it is. But that's not all the truth. There's something else that is said. The third truth is this, that God is holy. God is holy, and therefore God is just. He must and he will certainly punish all sin. In the text it speaks of being saved. It talks about God providing a savior which are words suggesting that there is a real danger that we face, that we need to be rescued from. What is that? The punishment of God. In Nahum, chapter 1, verse 3, it says, The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. That's a reality, too. On the one hand, God is love. He does not wish to punish us. On the other hand, he is a holy God. And he must and he will punish all sin. God will punish not because he's mean or vindictive, but God will punish because he is, in fact, a just God. That very idea forms the very basis for justice. You and I get frustrated sometimes because of the lack of injustice in our world. Well, just imagine if that were true for all of eternity, that there were going to be no ultimate justice. 
part of the way we deal with the evil in our world now and the evil especially that is not judged and dealt with is the realization that ultimately it will be dealt with. God will deal with it. If that were not so, how would we exist? The third truth is absolutely as true as the, as the second and the first, and that is that God is holy and will punish sin. And so it seems to leave God in this dilemma, doesn't it? This self-imposed dilemma in which on one side he wants to be merciful and on the other side he must judge us. What is God to do? Well, that brings us to the fourth truth. It is the most amazing thing. It is absolutely startling. It's breathtaking to look at this. It is that God himself provides the resolution to his dilemma. He doesn't expect us to come up with a solution. He does it. He provides a Savior who satisfies his justice on the one hand and becomes the means by which he releases his love to us on the other hand. Notice what he says. There is one God, one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men. Together with this, look at, at Romans chapter 3, verses 25 and 26, where it says, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. Through faith in his blood, he did this to demonstrate his justice. His justice. Because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time. Then the last phrase. So as to be just, holy the one who must punish sin, and the one who justifies, the one who forgives the sinner and saves him in mercy. Why did God provide Jesus Christ as a Savior? It is so that he could be just and holy and punish sin as it was placed upon his Son. And then raise his son from the dead so that he could be a living, real Savior to all who have faith in Jesus. And deliver them from their sin. Forgive them of their sin. And make them righteous in his sight. Just as righteous as Jesus himself. That's truth. That's truth. God came and he himself bore the penalty of our sin in order to satisfy his own justice. Amazing, amazing grace. And he did this once and for all time at the cross. It never needs to be repeated, thank God. For all time the penalty was paid in the single death of Jesus. 
he has provided a mediator, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom. That word ransom means the price for freedom. It was a term used in that day for the amount that was necessary to release a slave from his slavery. Jesus paid that price for you and me that we might be released from our slavery to our sin and its punishment. But there's a fifth statement we need to look at. A fifth truth that comes out of our text today and which is reiterated throughout the Bible. And that truth is this, that God has provided no other Savior or means to be released from the penalty of sin. There is one God, says the Bible, and one mediator between God and humanity. Only one. There is no other mediator. There is no other mediatrix. There is one. And he, he is the man who is also Christ. Jesus. Acts 4.12 says, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Notice that, no other name whereby we must be saved. 1 John 5, verses 11 and 12, read it with me from the screen. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Now, do you see all that gray area in there? <laughs> There's no gray area. It's one or the other. Either you have the Son of God or you do not have the Son of God. Either you have life or you do not have life. That's what God says. I didn't say this. God is saying this to us. It's right here in this text, and you can find it throughout the Bible. And it's absolute truth. We are committed to this truth. But let's come back now to the question. What about those who've never heard this truth? We agree that this is absolute truth, but what about those who've never heard this absolute truth? Will God really condemn them? Well, as I said before, the answer of this goes to the heart of who God is. From the truth that we've looked at, you learn this about God, that He offers salvation exclusively through faith in his appointed Savior for the human race. Nowhere else do we see any other truth than that. Now as we come to formulate an answer to the question, we have to understand that this is the truth that we learn about God. It goes to the heart of who God is. This God of love is a God who is holy, and he has provided the Savior. And he offers to the entire human race salvation 
but it is exclusively offered through faith in his appointed Savior, Jesus the Christ. There's something else we can say about God. We've talked about the justice of God. This is the truth that we learn about God, that God will always act with perfect justice toward everyone. As Abraham said in Genesis chapter 18, will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? It was a rhetorical question. Of course he will. He is a God of perfect justice. He will always do what is right. In Deuteronomy 32 verse 4 it says, He is just in all his ways. Here's the bottom line that I come to. It's the only bottom line that I can see from Scripture. It is this, if people respond to the light that they have, God will show them mercy and see that they receive the truth that saves. I believe that with all of my heart. If there are people who've never heard of Jesus yet, who are in fact following the light that they have, God cannot save them based upon that general light. They have to hear about the substitutionary sacrifice of a Savior. But if they in fact do follow the light that they have from creation and conscience, God is a just God and He will take it upon Himself that they hear that message of Jesus Christ, so that they may believe upon him and be saved. I do not put any limits upon how God may choose to do that. I have heard too many stories that were credible to me about supernatural things that God has occasionally done to get the message out to people who had absolutely no church near them, no missionary near them. God had intervened supernaturally so that they heard that message. Be it angels or whatever it was, they heard the message. Robertson McQuilkin says, judgment is against a person in proportion to his rejection of moral light. If people are following the moral light that God gives them in general revelation, I believe that God is just to get the truth to them. And if they reject the moral light, then they will be condemned. If they reject general revelation and go off and create an idol or another god or some religious system, they will be condemned. You see, they're going to be condemned as much as the person who has heard the gospel over and over and over again and has rejected the truth? Well, it depends upon what you mean by judged as much as. I believe that there are degrees of punishment in hell. And the sorest and severest punishment of hell is for that person who has heard the truth of God and again and again has hardened his heart and rejected that truth and turned from Jesus Christ and walked away from God. Whereas there is also suffering in hell, but not as severe for the one who's never had the opportunity to hear 
the truth at all? The answer to this question goes right to the heart of who God is, but it also shapes who you are. The truth that you learn here about you and me is this, that we are the beneficiaries of amazing grace. That you and I should be born where we were born at a time that we were so that we heard the gospel as easily as we have, that is amazing grace. That people who are as revoltingly sinful as you and I are should should hear the message and have the opportunity to be rescued. That's amazing grace. We are the beneficiaries of amazing grace. Along with what we learn about ourselves is this, that you and I have an assignment to take this singular saving truth to everyone in our world. The Apostle Paul felt that way as he concludes this paragraph. He says, for this purpose, for the testimony of this gospel, I'm appointed a herald. Do you know that you are as well? Jesus said, you shall be witnesses unto me and to all the world, begin at Jerusalem and then Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. And this morning, the compelling vision on the video about those who've never heard and that Jesus died for them too. God's truth is the only truth for all people everywhere. God's truth is the only truth for all people everywhere. Now you and I can say, amen, that's right, preach it, brother. But I want to close today with some comments and then a story by Robertson McQuilkin. He says, when all has been said that can be said on this issue, the greatest remaining mystery is not the character of God nor the destiny of lost people. The greatest mystery is why those who are charged with rescuing the lost have spent 2,000 years doing other things, good things perhaps, but have failed to send and be sent until all have heard the liberating word of life in Christ Jesus. The lost condition of human beings breaks the Father's heart. What does it do to ours? In a dream, he says, I found myself on an island, Sheep Island. Across the island, sheep were scattered and lost. Soon I learned that a forest fire was sweeping across from the opposite side. It seemed that all were doomed to destruction unless there were some way of escape. Although there were many unofficial maps, I had a copy of the official map, and there discovered that indeed there is a bridge to the mainland, a narrow bridge, built, it was said, at incredible cost. My job, I was told, would be to get the sheep across the bridge. I discovered many shepherds herding the sheep who were found and seeking to corral those who were within easy access to the bridge. But most of the sheep were far off and shepherds seeking them few. The sheep near the fire knew that they were in trouble and were frightened. Those at a distance were peacefully grazing, enjoying life. 
I noticed two shepherds near the bridge whispering to one another and laughing. I moved near them to hear the cause of joy in such a dismal setting. Perhaps the chasm is narrow somewhere, and at least the strong sheep have opportunity to save themselves, said one. Maybe the current is gentle and the stream shallow. Then the courageous, at least, can make it across. The other responded, That may well be. In fact, wouldn't it be great if this proves to be no island at all? Perhaps it's just a peninsula and and great multitudes of sheep are already safe. Surely the owner would have provided some alternative route. And so they relaxed and went about other business. In my mind, I began to ponder their theories. Why would the owner have gone to such great expense to build a bridge, especially since it is a narrow bridge, and many of the sheep refuse to cross it even when they find it? In fact, if there is a better way by which many will be saved more easily, building the bridge is a terrible blunder. And if this isn't an island after all, what what is to keep the fire from sweeping right across into the mainland and destroying everything? As I pondered these things, I heard a quiet voice behind me saying, There is a better reason than the logic of it, my friend. Logic alone could lead you either way. Look at your map. There on the map, by the bridge, I saw a quotation from the first under-shepherd, Peter. Neither is there salvation in any other. There is no other way from the island to the mainland whereby a sheep may be saved. Then I discerned, carved on the old rugged bridge itself, I am the bridge. No sheep escapes to safety but by me. McQuilkin concludes by saying, In a world in which nine out of every ten people is lost, three of four have never heard the way out, and one of every two cannot hear, the church sleeps on. How come? Could it be that we think there must be some other way? Or perhaps we don't really care that much. Let's pray.